All right, Psalm chapter 119, verses 97 through 105 is where we'll begin this morning. This uh, flows well with Psalm 19, which Ed walked you through earlier. Here's what it says. Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Sometimes you feel like the psalmist is a liar. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. That means he chews on them over and over again. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It sends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, we're uh, studying the law of God's. Uh, this semester, the law of God, particularly as it is summarized and famously known um, as the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, which are found in Exodus chapter 20 and then in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And uh, last week we spent um, our time, um, essentially what I was wanting to do was preach to you the good news of the law. That the psalmist speaks about it, he says it here, I love the law, I delight in the law. We proclaim the good news about and preach to you about the delight of of the law of God. And this week as a second introduction, I I felt coming out of it is, the, the main point we looked at last week is this, is that the law of God is ultimately there for you to love God. That's what it's about For you to delight in God so much so that he has set you free through the work of Jesus Christ so that you might now respond to his saving work as an act of love to him. And so, but this week I want to give us a second introduction and this one's going to be, it's going to be crunchier. Uh, it's, it's, It's a little bit more forming. I'll say very clearly today, today is not preaching, it is teaching. And I, I'm not even sure I know what that means there, um, other than there seems to be some sort of continuum. Um, this should be done on a whiteboard, uh, is more of what should be done today. So we've got lots of, lots of scriptures coming at you. This is very didactic. This is kind of just kind of a lot of information download for the ways in which I want you to be viewing uh, the law in the coming weeks as we walk through each of them. And so uh, just, just as, a, as a means of a, a warning here at the beginning, that that's how we're going to be going through. I told my wife this morning that the sermon was boring and that they'll be happy not to see me for five weeks. Um, I hope it's not boring, but here, here we go. Didactic teaching on the law of God. How is it useful to your life? And since I said it's teaching, we're going to take the Socratic method. We're going to ask questions and I'm going to answer them. You know what the Socratic method is? Just have a conversation with Dan Williams and you'll discover rather rapidly what the Socratic method is. Here's your first question. Two questions for you this morning. Your first question, I'll be, be really brief on it. It's this. First, what do we mean by the law or the commands of God? When we refer to the law of God, what are we referring to? 
Now, very pointedly, we're referring here for our, the sake of our series to the Ten Commandments. But th- this can be confusing for us because God has commands all over the place in his scriptures, doesn't he? Not to mention uh, Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, the Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, where we get the other set of the, you know, the other uh, uh, writing of the, of the Ten Commandments. It is followed by chapter after chapter and indeed whole books that are filled with laws by God. In fact, there are 613 separate laws that God is going to give to Israel in the books of uh, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what most theologians have found is that these, this law, all these 613 laws, can be broken up into about three parts or three different types of laws. The first is the cere- what is called the ceremonial law. You find this primarily in Leviticus. It has the root word of Levite, talking about the worship, the ceremony of, of the, the worship of God in the temple or the tabernacle. Th- this gives you all those logs about cleansings and washings and the shedding of blood and how you prepare an animal to sacrifice it and how, how you cleanse yourself before you come to the temple and when you aren't cleansed and what you can do before you come to worship and what you can't do before you come to worship. All this is given to show this. The ceremonial law tells us this. We are unclean, and getting clean before God is really serious business. And that ultimately, you actually can't be clean before God until God washes our souls, and until God makes us right by the shedding of blood. Because our sin deserves God's wrath. And we are not cleansed from those sins. Those things are not removed from us until God's wrath has been poured out upon those sins. But these things, these laws... They are no longer applicable to the Christian in this way. Jesus came and fulfilled all the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is about all these ways in which you have to be cleansed, but now we know that we are cleansed simply through the blood of Jesus. The ceremonial law tells us about how you prepare a lamb and how, how, how perfect and unblemished that lamb has to be. And Jesus comes to be the unblemished lamb. He is the true lamb that the ceremonial law points to. And so in the ceremonial law we see in Hebrews, if you go and read Hebrews, it's very much about applying the ceremonial law to the life of the Christian, how Jesus fulfilled it, particularly in Hebrews chapter 8, about how the law, the ceremonial law was merely a shadow, but the real thing has come. And when you have the real thing, you don't care about the shadow. The shadow no longer applies to you. So that's the ceremonial law. And so that, what that means, Christians, is no, we don't show up each and every Sunday and slaughter sheep and goats. You know, we don't have a bathing, a wash tub outside. Now, we might need that, but that's for different reasons. We don't need to get ritually cleansed. You, it, and the, the way this often looks for the Christian is this, and this is a beautiful truth, is we cleanse ourselves by making ourselves look really good when we come to church. Now, listen, for the rest of us, we love that you take a shower, but ultimately, it is not how you dress, right? Because what you need to be cleansed with is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how you get ready for church, as you wake up and say, I cannot make myself clean, but Jesus has. That's how you get dressed for church. So that's the ceremonial law. Then there's another kind of law they call, it's called judicial or civil law. Uh, and along with it was what we would normally call case law. Case law, these are examples where it gives you kind of a story or an illustration and, and gives a ruling, how God would rule as a kind of a principle, uh, foundational ruling that you can then apply to other um, examples. Israel was designed and was supposed to be a theocracy. There was not to be a king. 
There is direct rule from King Yahweh. God himself and his laws were to be directly applied to them. God gave laws for national Israel that applied his, the, the Ten Commandments. And what we will call and look at in just a second is the moral law. It applied the moral law into their lives. Therefore, what did it look like for to rule rightly? What did it look like to, to apply God's moral law in a national and ethnic context? And what we see is, in, is that this civil law is no longer binding on us as either. is because we are not Israel. We are the true Israel. We are not an ethnic people. We are not a singular nation. But we actually see in Matthew chapter 21 and Ephesians chapter 5 that what Jesus says is he is where there was one people, the people of Israel. God has taken two and made them one. And what he's saying there in Ephesians chapter 2 is that God has taken not just Israel, but people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he has made them as true Israel. All those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that we are people who submit to our local governments, but we are not as a church, the church is not supposed to be the civil government itself. And so those rules and those laws don't, don't apply to us anymore because we are not a national governmental people. That's not what the church is supposed to be. We have our own rules that are outlined for us in the New Testament about how the church is supposed to run. We're not going to look at that today. The third, the third category is what's called the moral law. The moral law. And the moral law is the foundation and principle of all the other laws It is out of the moral law that the civil and the ceremonial law springs. The law of God, God's, if you could summarize the law of God in this way, Jesus does it and they do it throughout the Old Testament, it's this, love God and love neighbor. And it is concretely stated in the Ten Commandments, which is what we're looking at this semester. So it is succinctly summarized in the command to love God and love neighbor, and it is concretely stated in the Ten Commandments. That's what the moral law of God is. And the moral law of God has been binding and always will be binding upon all people for all time. In other words, you are called and you are commanded, even as New Testament believers, to keep the Ten Commandments. You are called and commanded to obey the moral law of God. The order in which we can even see the way um, in the, in the, the development lit- from a literary perspective of Exodus is God starts with the moral law in Exodus chapter 20 with his Ten Commandments. And then we see in Exodus chapter 21 through 23, God reveals the civil law for the people of Israel. And then beginning in Exodus chapter 25, God provides the ceremonial laws about the tabernacle. Thus the Ten Commandments stand alone and they are distinct but they, all other laws flow from them, are subsequent to them. So now what I want you to see here is that while we are bound to keep the moral law, and when you're not bound to keep the, more, the civil and the ceremonial law, there is still something that we can learn from the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws. Those are things you can actually go and study and actually learn good things. For example, if you, if you were to go and study the ceremonial laws, it would reveal the beauty of Jesus as our ceremonial sacrifice, the one who ultimately washes us with his blood. It, you would learn there in the ceremonial laws about how, how sinful you are, not just in your acts, but in your very being. It tells you about how sinful you are, and it shows you your need for a greater sacrifice. The civil laws can be applied to your life as well. The civil laws simply try to apply the moral law to the specific context of national Israel. And though we are not bound to keep those laws, 
and there is, should not be a one equals one correlation between Israel's civil law and American civil law. There is something ethically we can still learn from the civil laws of the Old Testament. Both sets of laws enshrine important principles that God has given us that can instruct us today. But more importantly of all of them is the moral law for us. For the moral law of God is for all time. And the reason for that is the moral law of God flows directly and reflects perfectly God's character. And because God doesn't change, his moral law and his commands for us doesn't change. For example, let me, and this, this, these moral laws were in place even before the Ten Commandments were concretely given. For example, when God talks about Abraham in Genesis chapter 26, verse 5, Abraham is described as a man who is blameless, and he's called a law keeper. It says this, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The moral law of God was there. It flowed out of his character even before the Ten Commandments were concretely given to Moses on the Mount of Sinai. The moral law, in fact, goes back all the way to the creation. And the reason why we know this, it is the standard by which God holds all human beings accountable. Because Paul uses this in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 to underscore that we are all sinners in the sight of God. Romans 1 and 2, Paul says this, that we are morally accountable by God and that Gentiles, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, will be judged for their sinfulness because it says this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. In other words, that there are things that God has endowed upon us as humans that we know inherently that are wrong. You know, one of the things that people will talk about in regards to the Ten Commandments about how it's really not that special because we have things like the Code of Hammurabi. Well, what I would say is actually you're just making Paul's point is that there is a natural law that God has put upon the hearts of human beings to which we are all held accountable. There is a moral law that reflects God's character that from Adam and Eve until the last human being on earth will be held accountable to that law. Humans may not like or may not, and may not properly keep the moral law, but they know it. And they ought to know that God holds them accountable to it. And so to answer our first question, what do we mean by the law that we're studying? What do we got to keep? What I'm talking about is the moral law of God. Let me summarize it this way using the words of Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan theologian. He said this, the moral law is unalterable. It remains in force, still in force. Though the ceremonial and judicial laws are abrogated, the moral law delivered by God's own mouth is of perpetual use in the church, and it was written in tablets of stone to show its perpetuity. In other words, it goes on always. The rest of the laws were not put on stone and written by the hands of God. The Ten Commandments were. So all that being said, it is important for us to know, though this, this other truth is that while as Christians We are a people, as it says in the New Testament, who are not under the law of God in this sense. We're not under the law of God in this, and that we are free from the law's condemnation because Jesus took all the condemnation for us. And we are free from law-keeping as a means of making you righteous before God. Jesus did all the righteous work you needed. He fulfilled the law for you. But we are under the law in this sense, and that we are still called and still called and commanded to keep the Ten Commandments even today. We are commanded and must keep the Ten Commandments today as a means, as we saw last week, 
of communicating to God our love and affection for him. And so in studying the law of God, as it is found in the Ten Commandments, the question for us as Christians, especially as New Testament Christians, living after the time of Jesus, who has, who has taken all the condemnation of the law, who fulfilled the law for us, what are the, what's the law's use for us today? How should we use the law as Christians today? And this is the meat of what I want to talk about this morning. This is your second question, and we'll spend the rest of our time looking at the answers for this. How is the law of God useful to us? This is actually, there's a very famous answer to this. John Calvin gives, hey, he's got what's called the three uses of the law. And they go this way, that the use of the law is first to simply restrain wickedness. That it keeps people from being as bad as they possibly could be. That if you know the government's going to put you in jail for stealing something, it restrains you at least somewhat. And therefore, society is a little bit better because of laws. That's one reason the law is useful. Second, because the law of God leads us to Christ. And third, because the law of God reveals what is pleasing to God. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to break it down into longer form. I'm actually going to give you eight ways in which the law is useful to Christians, but it's going to kind of follow that, that heading this morning, those three that John Calvin has given us. And so to answer the question, how is the law useful for the Christian? The law of God is useful in these eight ways. First, in restraining sin by guiding, warning, and blessing it restrains sin by guiding, warning, and blessing. Psalm 119, verses 101 and 105 says this, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your words. That his own feet were guided away from evil because of the word of God. The psalmist says it again, that he is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, we read this morning. God's law is to be a guide to us. To show us how to live our life. The imagery here suggests a person walking on a narrow path in a moonless light, groping in the dark to find, try to find the, the correct way. And a wrong turn could lead to a, a, a terrible life, into a, a terrible precipice, falling off the edge. But if you keep God's law, it is, the law of God is used as a light that goes before you, that shows you the next steps, and that gives you wisdom on how you're to live your life. The law, the light that shines from the law reveals the snares that might be before us. It's why you should teach your kids Proverbs and read the Proverbs, because the Proverbs is an exposition of the law in light of the practicalities of life. What does it look like? It is not the gospel. But it gives great wisdom that the parents, as kids, we desperately want our kids to live a life that is consequence free from some of the mistakes that they can make. And the law is good for that, to guide your step, your step and your children's steps. The, the, the law also does this. It restrains sin by warning us of the consequences of sin. It's the same thing you do as parents, right? It is, the law is parental, it's guiding and it's parental. In fact, that's actually how Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 3. That the law was a guardian until Christ came. It, 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 it keeps you, it warns you, right? I tell my kid that if you do that, here's the clear discipline if you do that. If you touch the light socket, you get shocked. This is the consequence. And the, the psalmist loves this too about God's law. In Psalm 89, verses 30 through 33, it says this. If children forsake my law and do not walk according to your rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquities with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. 
Psalm 19, verse 11, we read this morning. Moreover, by them, talking about the law, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. What we see in the Old Testament and we see Paul repeating in the New Testament, which we'll look at in just a minute, is that God says, here's my laws. And if you keep my laws, there are blessings. And if you fail to keep the law, there are cursings. There are disciplines. Now, you are not given the full extent of the curse of the law anymore. Jesus took that for you. But there is still natural discipline that happens in life when you violate God's law. Paul brings it back up in Ephesians chapter 6 after explaining the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he quotes literally from the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, in order that what? In order that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul's saying, yes, you, are, you live by grace. That's how you are saved. But there is also great blessings, temporal blessings, when you obey your parents, when you obey God. And in guiding us, the law acts as a restraint upon our sinfulness. How many of you were scared of your mom and dad growing up? Or at least your dad. I was. I mean, my dad was super loving. My dad was super gracious. But you know what? There was, and I am so grateful that my parents taught me the law of God. I was scared out of my mind to disobey. And I am so grateful for the, the consequences that I was able to avoid in life because of that. Now, I desperate, that didn't save me. That doesn't save me. But yet there is, great, there is great grace that comes to my children and to your children to you when God guides you in this way. He protects you from your own sinfulness and restrains your sinfulness until the time when maybe, when maybe the Spirit enters in and regenerates your heart so that you desire to obey him because you love him, not simply because you're scared of God. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says this, the law was our guardian until Christ Came. And so parents, teach your kids the law of God. How many of your kids actually even know the Ten Commandments? I don't think we teach it anymore. You know, in, in, in the olden days, and by the olden days I mean like 300 and 400 years ago, all the Reformed catechisms, a third of them, you know what they were about? They were all about teaching kids the law of God's. And in fact, the Roman Catholic Catechism, which is over 700 pages, almost 200 of it is dedicated to understanding and rightly living out the law of God's. Our forefathers used to love the law of God because they read about it, and they cared about it, and they believed they did great things in their children's lives. We should teach our kids the law of God. So first, it restrains sin. Second, the second use of the law for the Christian is this. Reflect, it helps you, it's useful for reflecting upon the character of God's. Reflecting upon the character of God. The law is not an abstract group of, of, of rules and regulations. It is not like the IRS tax code that has been created in some sort of cold hallway somewhere by some nameless, faceless bureaucrats. The law is given directly by God. It is a reflection of his will and his desires, and indeed, it's a reflection of the very character of God's. When the psalmist speaks of his affection for the law of God, he makes no distinction between God's law and God's character. In fact, if you, there, there's a study. I wish I had the graph to be able to show you up on the PowerPoint screen. But there's, there, you can do it. There's a study that can be shown where it shows the descriptions of God and descriptions of the law. And there are at least 15 descriptions in which Wade describes God's character in which there is a parallel text that describes the law in exactly the same way. For example, both God and the law are described as good. 
They're both described as just. They're both described as righteous. They're both described as spiritual. They're both described as holy and truthful and perfect, as light, as love, as pure, unchangeable, as eternal. Both of things, these are both used in the scripture to describe both God and his law. Why? Because the law is merely the extension of the God who gives it. Study the law to know the lawgiver. Study the law to learn about the character of your God. It tells us beautiful things. Your God, for example, if you just look at the second half, for example, thou shalt not murder, you learn that the God, your God hates the taking of life, but he loves the giving and flourishing of life. That's the character of your God's. And in fact, right, we see it in Christ Jesus, don't we? In fact, he loves, he loves the giving and flourishing of life so much that he's willing to take on death himself to give you flourishing. You learn that your God hates adultery. He hates the abandonment of unfaithfulness. But he loves it when spouses pursue one another in love and affection and protection and care. And so that's the kind of God he is. He's the God who pursues. You learn that your God hates the stealing of property, but he loves giving your property away. We have a God who came not to seek, but to take from us, but to give to us. You learn that God hates lying, but he loves truth-telling in love. You learn that your God hates greed, but he loves contentment. This is the character of your gods. Go and study the law of God, and you'll learn something about the character of God. Are you stunted in your growth as a Christian? Do you feel like you haven't learned anything new about God in a long time? I would suggest maybe you go study the Ten Commandments. Oh, wait, we're doing it this semester, so that should work out pretty well. Third, third, the law is useful to the Christian in helping us reflect and reflecting upon your need of a Savior The Ten Commandments are there. We looked at this last week, so I'll be very brief. The Ten Commandments are there to convict us. Not as the means of salvation, but to show us how desperately we need a Savior. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. In other words, how do you know what covetousness is until God comes to you and says, this is wrong, this is unlawful, this is called covetousness, don't do this. The law is there to convict you. And that is a painful process. But where that law is painful, convicting work is ultimately a gracious thing because it shows you that you don't have the chops to keep it, that you need somebody to keep it for you. Simply look at, if you were to look simply at the Ten uh, Ten Commandments as Jesus expounds it at the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You were to go through that and and you were to look at all those commandments where, where Jesus says, yeah, it's not just about fulfilling the letter of the law, but it's also the spirit of the law you gotta fulfill as well. One pastor put it this way, after reading Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he said, God save us all from the Sermon on the Mount. Because it is terrifying to read the Sermon on the Mount. It's re- it convicts us, it shows us that we have not kept one iota of God's law perfectly. And if you listen at all to the law of God, how will you feel? You'll feel naked and exposed. Adam and Eve had one law that they were to, f- to fulfill. Don't eat of the tree. They broke that law. How did they feel? They felt naked and ashamed. How much more you and I who break God's law over and over and over again, but the law is meant to lead you to Christ. St. Augustine said this, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, in other words, so you try to do what God tells you to do, 
So feeling our weakness under the law, in other words, I can't keep it, may learn to implore the help of grace. The law shows you you desperately need grace. The law highlights our weaknesses so that we find strength in Christ. It serves as our schoolmaster, pointing us ultimately to Jesus. That's the third. So reflect. The law is useful in reflecting upon your need for a Savior. Fourth, the law is useful in reflecting upon the beauty of Jesus' work. Jesus fully reveals the character of God. And that he, does he do that by saying, you know what, the law doesn't matter. No, no, no. He comes and says, I'm going to reflect the character of God perfectly. I'm going to live a perfectly righteous life, not by pushing the law aside, but by perfectly fulfilling the law, by perfectly doing and obeying the law of God. And Jesus fulfills the law of God for us in two ways. First, by keeping it on our behalf. By keeping the law for us. I want you to understand this. The context of the Ten Commandments is given to Israel right at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings, isn't it? The rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is the story about God giving his people the law, them not keeping it, and them just kind of wandering around out in the desert for 40 years. Did you know that there's a story in which Jesus literally relives the story of Israel? It's called the the temptation of Jesus. In which Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He eats nothing and drinks nothing. And he is tempted to sin by the devil himself there. And yet Jesus is obedient. In other words, what Jesus is showing is he is the true Israel. Israel was given these commandments and they couldn't keep them for two seconds. And yet, you know, look at the, the, the juxtaposition between the two. If you read the first half of Exodus, before God gives the law in Exodus chapter 20, it is all about all these good things that God has done for Israel. He saves them by the plagues. He removes them from Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. He provides them food. He provides them water. He provides them bread on a daily basis. Everything is there provided for them, and yet they can't keep God's law for two seconds. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He gets no food. He gets no water, and yet he completely obeys the Father. He's obedient where we are not obedient. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient, not just in the 40 days in the desert, but even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Jesus was obedient on your behalf. The second way in which Jesus was obedient and how he fulfilled the law of God is he took the curse of the law for us. So he keeps the law for you. And then the curse that you deserve for all your lack of law keeping, he takes that. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses to everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to Gentiles, it's you and me, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you should have died. And because he did that, because he did that, the beauty of Jesus' work in all his law keeping does this for you. It means there is nothing between you and God anymore. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. How? In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done with the law. God did the law. with the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son. That's the beauty of Jesus' work. You want to know how you are reconciled with God? It's because somebody kept the law of God for you. Fifth, the law of God is useful for revealing how you love and please God. How you love and please God. 
I'm going to transition into this because we, we kind of, we've done a, little, a lot of that with some stuff that we dealt with last week. We're definitely getting into some new territory this morning. So I'm going to transition by giving you another quote from an old dead guy, a guy named Octavius Winslow. You know someone's old and dead when their name is Octavius. Octavius Winslow, a, he was a prominent evangelical preacher in the late 19th century. He says this, saints of God, keep your eye of faith intently and immovably fixed upon Christ your soul pattern. For our Lord did not keep that law that his people might be lawless. He did not honor that law that we might dishonor the law of God. His obedience provided no license for disobedience. His fulfillment releases us not from the obligation of the law, the sweet and pleasant yet solemn obligation to holiness of life. Our faith does not make void the law, but rather establishes the law for our lives. Here's what I want you to know. The commands of God is no longer the entrance exam to heaven. Jesus completed the entrance exam for you. There is no master barking out commands to slaves, but these are not an arbitrary set of rules that we can just set aside. The commands of God are now the operating instruction for the new gift of the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. Would you see them that way? How do I know how to live in this Christian life? The Ten Commandments help you. They're the the operating instruction how to live out faith in Jesus Christ. And the commands and laws of God reveal the will of God and how you are to love him. Now, I want to make sure I'm very clear on this because I I fear that after last week, there may be some faulty thinking. Here's some ways in which we, we, we we can sometimes think about the law as this. Some may say, because of Jesus Christ, now it's just about whether I love God or not. It's not about law keeping. It's not about love. It's all about loving God, not about law keeping. Or some say it's this way: love, not law, is all we need. Now, last week I said yes. God has set us free so that we love to keep God's commands. But what I want you to see here is we cannot ever make the false dichotomy between loving God and keeping God's commands. You know how you love God? You keep His commands. You want to know how you love God? You keep God's commands. It is as a Christian. It is not well. Listen, I'm set free, and now whatever I feel is loving towards God, that's what I do. No, 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 no. God has dictated very clearly, not how you feel loving towards God, but how when you feel loving towards God, how that's supposed to be enacted out into your life. The ethics of the New Testament, the living into God's well, is developed fully from the the Ten Commandments. We live by the Spirit, but understand this. Understand this. The Spirit never speaks in a way that's contradictory to God's law. So if God has told you to do something that's contrary to the Ten Commandments, then you're not hearing from from the Spirit. You're hearing either from your own mind or from a demon. That is an important principle. Because it it is too often I hear Christians coming in and saying, yes, yes, God told me to do this, and the Spirit led me to do this. And you're going, I don't think God would tell you to do that. Because that's directly contradiction from what he said over here to do or what not to do. We hear from God. You, the law of God is useful for telling you how to please and love God. Six, the law of God is useful for revealing how you can love your neighbor. The summary of the law of God is this. Love God, love neighbor. Shows you how you love your neighbor. We, get, we go to the law of God to get the true definition of what it means to be in relationship with other people and to love them well. There is, um, in the history of philosophy and ethics, there is a school of thought called situational ethics and it actually rejected biblical law as too rigid. Instead, we're told in situational ethics that we only need to do things, to do things in a loving, loving thing. 
If we just love the thing that we're doing something for, then whatever we do is, is great for that person. And that we simply, that we get to be the arbiter of what that is. But this begs the question, how do you know what is best for a person? How do you know what's best for your neighbor? Is sleeping together with someone before marriage the best thing or the worst thing for him or her? You might say, man, they love me. They feel great affection for me. This is a really intimate act. We feel great being together in this way. That, yeah, your feelings say this is a really loving act. And in fact, you were designed to feel that way, but only in the context of the way God says in which it's loving, which is in the context of marriage. The law is God's way of saying, if you want to love others, act this way. I created people. I know what's best for them. So love people in the way I have called you to love them. This is why Paul could write, when Paul says, gives in the commandments to the people of, uh, in the New Testament, he says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit it, com- co- covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself, for love does not harm, do harm to its neighbor. You see, he applies the same rule we have about loving God to loving your neighbor. You want to know how to love your neighbor? The Ten Commandments. And in this way, it also say this, in this way, you would also display the glory of God to, a, to the world. Your obedience to the law of God is actually a means. Your love of neighbor in the, in the way that's consistent with the law of God is a means of doing evangelism. You know why the people of, of Israel were to follow all these laws? God tells them over and over again in the laws. He says, because I have called you to be a people who are separate and who are holy. You're to be different than all the other nations around you so that they may come and come to know me as the true God. Jesus says, they will know you by your, by your love. And how do you love? By keeping the King Commandments. As a means so they may know the love of your God. First Peter 2 verse 12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Seventh, the law of God is useful for revealing the evidence of your salvation. The evidence of your salvation. First John, if you want to know, how do you know you, you're, how do you know you know you're saved? We did a whole series on First John looking at this. First John says, you know you love God when you keep God's commandments. The law is not the means of salvation, but law keeping is a gauge of how well you're applying the salvation that you claim to have to your life. Second Peter verses 1 through 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your election and your calling. In other words, what Peter says is this, By obedience, by obeying God, you confirm that you are saved. The law can function as an evaluative and testing tool in the life of the Christian. And it can work both ways. Disobedience to God's law negatively affects your sense of assurance. You know Why? Disobedience negatively affects our experience of our salvation and in turn our assurance of our salvation. You're not saved by your law keeping, but when you sin and you feel guilty, it is then that the devil can come after you and go, has Jesus really covered this? It is here that you're maybe tempted to say that maybe God is displeased with me that when, you're, when you're not an obedient child. God's love for you does not waver, but God does not love you less when you sin, and he doesn't love you more when you're an obedient child, but your experience of his love is felt more when you obey him. They're both loving. When I discipline my children, it's a loving act, but do you think they feel more loving, more loved by me after I've spanked them or after I've taken them on a tree because they've been obedient? They feel more loving when they're getting the blessings of their obedience. And so in the same way, this works for us. 
You feel separate from God when you've been disobedient from him. But on the opposite end, obedience positively affects our sense of assurance because we can see the visible evidence of the fruit of God's salvation taking effect into our lives. We obey so that there is some evidence and fruit that you are indeed saved. And other people can see it and be assured and encouraged by this. Let me give you an example of this. Rainy Pope tells a story about a guy that he was met at his gym. And this guy was not a believer. He was living with his girlfriend, living just kind of a, he was a good citizen, but kind of just living for himself. And he, Randy Pope shares the gospel to him, and this guy says, man, I want Jesus to be my, my Lord and Savior. I want him to be the master of my life. And so Randy asks him, does he know what it means for Jesus to be the master of your life? It means that there are certain things in your life that you're doing now that you cannot do anymore because you need to submit to God. And Randy, as a way of testing him, said this. Here's your assignment for this week. You say you, want, you profess faith in Jesus and you love him. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and list out all the things that you are actually have to bring into submit. What's got to change about your life if Jesus is your Lord and your master? And so the man, but it doesn't have to go home. The man says, you mean like not sleeping with my girlfriend anymore? And Randy goes, well, that would be a good start. That'd be a good start. So he goes home and he writes down these very things and he comes home and he says, yes, I want to have Jesus as my Lord and my master and my savior. And the man says, the first thing, the first thing on my list is the friend. And what I did this week is I moved out of my girlfriend's apartment this week. And Randy said, yes, this man professed faith, but now I have greater assurance that he is living in light of that profession of faith and that he is obedience. There is evidence the man's profession of faith is real and true. And your obedience gives you greater confidence that your profession of faith is real and true. So let me ask you this. If you're to look at the law of God, what does it reveal about you? We're going to look at that this semester. As you hold your life up to the light and test it in light of God's law, what does it say about you? Are you bearing the fruit of obedience? Lastly, we end with some good news. The law is useful for reflecting upon who you are, and I've given it there in parentheses, and who you're becoming. And this is a beautiful truth. Brothers and sisters, we obey because we have been set apart. Look, listen to what, what Moses says to the people of Israel and then what, first, what Peter says in 1 Peter about who they are, but even as he's given them the Ten Commandments. Verses, Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And not only that, we see this in Ephesians chapter 4, that when God calls us, it says this in Ephesians 4, that he's called us, our old man is dead, and a new man is coming to life and coming to the surface in our lives. Which means this, you are being made to look like Jesus. That if you have been saved and covered with the righteousness of Christ, not only that, but more and more and more in your life, by studying the Ten Commandments, you will find this is who I'm going to become. I'm going to become a man who loves like this. I'm going to become a woman who loves like this, who lives like this. This is the picture of what I'm going to become. Maybe not fully on this earth, but one day in heaven, this is how I'll live. And all the beauty and the radiance when Christ, God, Christ Jesus completes his work in me. The Heidelberg Catechism, and we'll end with this, asks this question. No, it says this, no one in life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Therefore, why should we preach them? 
And he gives this answer. Because while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life when we reach the goal of perfection. You should study the word of God, you should study the law of God, but it shows you the character of God, but it also shows you, brothers and sisters, you're being made into the image of character of God and the image of Jesus, his son, and that is, it's a vision for you of who you're becoming. And it's a beautiful vision, very much so. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that if we were to see each other one day in our beautified and glorious state when we're keeping the law of God perfectly, the rest of us would be tempted to bow down and worship. That's how beautiful you will become. That's what Jesus has done for you. That's why we should study the law of God this semester together here on Sunday mornings and in our community groups throughout the week. And so we will do that for the next 10 to 12 weeks. Will you pray with me as we go to the table? Those who are serving would come forward. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that while the Ten Commandments offers us great instruction and guidance, That as we looked at last week, we no longer have to be crushed by your law. For you have fulfilled it for us perfectly. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, we come to remember what it took for you to make us right with you. What it took, as we sang earlier, for Sinai's wrath and thundering to be silenced. For the justice of God to smile and say, I'm satisfied is it took the atoning work of Jesus for his body to be broken and his blood to be shed to wipe us clean, to make us pure and righteous, to make us law keepers in your sight. And so, Lord, we come to celebrate the work that you have done for us on your behalf. And so I set aside this simple bread and this simple cup. And, Lord, I pray that you would give us much grace, that, Lord, you would use them to draw us to yourself, to speak to us of how merciful you've been, how good you've been to us. And how you have done everything that is necessary to bring us home. So gracious God, move through these elements by your spirit to encourage us and grow us in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.